the clap. All right. Well, welcome everybody. We have a good turnout today um, for, I believe this is week seven. Am I right, George? Week seven? Uh, yes. Lesson seven. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. I, th I, was, I was pretty sure you kept me on track last time. <laughs> um, yeah. Apologize for, um, yeah, last week having to not do it. We had a crazy week. The uh, roofers came all of a sudden at the beginning of the week. And so we had to change everything we had planned because <laughs> they were working around the storm. So at least we got the rain. Well, today on week seven, we're going to be um, talking about the uh, sacrament of baptism and specifically how baptism is addressed in our prayer book. Um, make sure I'm not missing anybody who's trying to get in. And so, um, yeah, you will, you can find the, the uh, right for baptism beginning on page 273. Um, and then hopefully next week we'll talk about confirmation because baptism and confirmation do really flow right into each other um, in the way we do things. So um, yeah, that's the way it is. And as always, feel free if you have something you need to interject, um, you need to a question, a comment, just unmute yourself and go ahead and, uh, and, and, and talk and we'll, we'll get to you because uh, we have enough people that we're spilling over to two or three pages. And so I can't see everybody when their hands are raised. So we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Okay. So yes, the sacrament of baptism is this week and um, from the perspective of our prayer book and from our formularies, um, baptism is one of two sacraments. That's odd. Most of us have been taught um, that the number seven is the way to go. Um, but our prayer book really is focusing on two. Now, you might remember uh, from previously that part of that is the way we're defining sacrament. The prayer book defines sacrament a bit more narrowly um, in the classical prayer books than it would have been defined uh, by the Roman Catholic Church, by later prayer books, that sort of thing. Um, so uh, the sacrament being um, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace and uh, the means by which God gives us to obtain that grace and it's ordained by Christ himself. Now I'm getting some of the, the, phrases, the phrasings mixed up, but that's from the catechism, and we will take a look at that. But the key thing there in terms of that more narrow definition is that um, it was ordained by Christ himself. You're going to find that among um, more Catholic-minded Anglicans, um, this becomes a big point of contention because they say, well, the church has always defined it by seven. Who is... Uh, who are these reformers to um, take it upon themselves to kick out five of the seven? Well, again, remember, we're talking about how are we defining our terms? It's always very important to define your terms if you're going to have a fruitful discussion. But second, second of all, um, we don't see that number seven being ever universally accepted in both East and West. It was never defined in those terms by the, by the undivided church. And in the West, we don't, we, we don't see that number seven gaining wide acceptance until the Council of Florence in the, in the 15th century. And it doesn't get dogmatized until the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Now, for us as Anglicans, what's the problem with it, with it considering the seven is dogma if Trent is where it gets dogmatized? What do you all think? Didn't the Council of Trent Roman not Protestant? Yes, the Council of Trent postdates the Reformation. <laughs> it's after these splits had happened. And in large part, the Council of Trent was called to answer um, the, uh, the issues raised by the Reformation. Um, and it, it did correct some of the abuses that are going on in the medieval Western church. Uh, which is a good thing. I mean, you know, the truth is Trent was just as much of a Reformation as the Protestant Reformation was. Um, but at the same time, at the same time, when it comes to certain uh, doctrinal and dogmatic issues, they do double down, such as anathematizing those that would, um, that would 
claim um, that salvation is by grace alone and faith alone, you know, that, that gets explicitly anathematized uh, by Trent, you know, for example. And this number of the sacraments is another one of those issues that is kind of, you know, why does it get dogmatized at Trent? Well, because in part, the, refor the reformers, the Protestants were saying there's only two. You know, they were pushing back against that hundred year old narrative um, and the, the Roman church doubles down. But again, the most important part thing for us today is that we are defining the terms a bit more narrowly in that we're defining them as being instituted by Christ himself. As far as the other five, um, the way the Articles of Religion put it, um, they're things that kind of grow up organically in the life of the church. We might have some Old Testament antecedents, um, but it doesn't really kind of form into its way that we see it today until later. Um, although I think most of us can acknowledge that in some sense, the other five do uh, convey God's grace in some way, although it might not be in the same way as the Lord's Supper and baptism. Okay, so let's look at, um, let's look at our, our rite of baptism on page 273. We're gonna start by looking at the rubrics because um, the rubrics really do set the stage for, for our understanding of the, of the sacrament of baptism. It kind of, kind of really, really puts things in context for us. So the first rubric says, uh, the minister of every parish shall often admonish the people that they uh, defer not the baptism of their children and that it is most convenient that baptism should be administered upon Sundays and other holy days. Nevertheless, if necessity so require, baptism may be administered upon any other day. And also he shall warn them that except for urgent cause, they seek not to have their children baptized in their houses. Okay, so I'm gonna pose a question. I'm gonna answer a question that popped up in the chat just now. Um, so here's the question to think about while I answer that question. This first rubric that we're reading, um, what does this tell us about the way we approach the sacrament? So think about that. Um, the question that popped up in chat was, what are the other five? Um, so the other five sacraments, um, the, 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 uh, the two sacraments as, as the prayer book defines them are, are of course, communion and Holy Communion and, and, and Holy Baptism. Um, the other five that were, that are commonly called sacraments, that's the way our articles phrase it. The other five commonly called sacraments are um, uh, holy orders, so that's ordination, um, unction, that's a laying, laying on of hands and anointing of the sick, um, marriage, so holy matrimony, um, confirmation, and we'll talk about that next week. And what's the fifth one? Um, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm I'm drawing a ball. Oh, that's right. Penance, confession, yeah. uh, co confession and absolutions. And, and by that, um, the Roman Catholic Church does mean private auricular confession. They would not consider our general confession to be valid, except for in the most extreme of cases. So those are the five. Um, again, we, we, we practice them all, but we do not consider them to be sacraments in the same sense that communion and baptism are. And the main issue there is that communion and baptism were instituted by our Lord himself, by Christ himself, and they're generally necessary for salvation, um, as, as we've talked about in the past. Okay, so that first rubric, um, looking at that first rubric, what, is, what are some of the things that you get out of that as far as what it tells us about, um, about how we're approaching baptism? Uh, Pam, I, I muted you a while back. Uh, so uh, yeah, unmute yourself. I'm sorry. Here, let me see if I can unmute you, Pam. I'm sorry. Anybody else while I'm unmuting Pam? <laughs> well, it just stresses the urgency of proceeding with baptism, that there's no, that you don't necessarily need to delay for a long time. Yeah, okay, so that's, that's, that's a huge part. That's definitely a huge part. Um, it is something we do see as urgent. We want to bring 
our children into the visible church, into the family of faith um, as soon as possible. We don't want to delay unless there's an absolute need. Um, you know, we had, we had some parishioners recently, their, their poor little one was in the ICU. She was born very, very in, uh, premature. And so, and then that, by the time she was healthy enough to be out of the ICU, then COVID hit. So this poor little one has not yet been baptized. Um, she's going on, going on a year, but we'll baptize her pretty soon. You know, that's an urgent cause. On the other hand, you know, I have um, someone I went to high school with, uh, raised Roman Catholic, did not baptize their children because they wanted their children to be able to make that choice for themselves. We're saying that's not the way it's supposed to work. You know, you raise the child in the faith. Um, if they want to walk away, that's their business. But, you know, we, 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 we bring them into the family. Um, so that's, that's a good point. Okay, Pam, what, what did you have? Actually, the same thing. It's to um, bring the child into the family or anyone else into the family of God. That's the church. It's his family. And so to bring them up into the knowledge of God as soon as yeah. possible. So. This, there's a very corporate understanding of the faith here, right? I mean, we're not, it's just not, it's not just me and Jesus. It's all of us, right? And Jesus. Okay, how about this idea that it should be administered on Sundays and holy days? What's that tell you? Why is that important? When we're gathered. It's when we're gathered. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's when the people are there. We want to do this as a family. This is a family event. This is not a private party. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's an important part. Um, how about this idea of, and we really have the same thing with, in terms of not to have their children baptized in their houses. Um, we would generally, again, that's, that's kind of against private baptism. It's not that we can't do private baptism, but that we shouldn't do private baptism. This needs to be a community thing. Okay. Let's, um, let's look at the next rubric. There shall be for every male child to be baptized when they can be had two godfathers and one godmother, and for every female, one godfather and two godmothers, and parents shall be admitted as sponsors if it be desired. What's this tell us? Why would we want to have two godfathers for a boy and one godmother, but two godmothers for a girl and one godfather? Have a good role model for the same gender. Right, right. You want, to, you want to have good role models, um, people that are praying for you, that are, that are committing to raise you in the faith. Um, and how, how about this idea that parents um, can be admitted as sponsors if so, so desired? Well, sometimes you just can't get three. <laughs> sometimes you just can't get three folks to, uh, to do it. At All Saints, we've, we've generally been, um, you know, since I've been here, um, even way before I was the rector, it's usually we've been able to see that. Um, you'll find that, that that's, that's a little less traditional these days. Um, it seems that here in the States, most folks at least have one godfather and one godmother that's outside of the parents, the parents, you know, besides the parents being sponsors. But in, um, in the UK, in, in, in our mother church in England, it seems that most of the time, at least in recent memory, um, they only get that one person who's of the same gender besides the parents. So this is kind of a silly example, but you might remember um, if, if you've seen the Harry Potter movies or read the Harry Potter book, Harry's only got one godfather, right? Um, and, and his, you know, Church of England people, well, yeah, that's because his parents suffice for the other ones. Um, you know, that's, and that's just kind of the culture that they were swimming in, or the, at least the author was anyway. Okay, um, next rubric. When there are children to be baptized, the parents or sponsors shall give knowledge thereof to the minister, and the godfathers and godmothers and the people with the children must be ready at the font, either immediately after the second lesson at morning and evening prayer, or at such other time as the minister shall appoint. Um, so that's going back to remembering that... Um, once upon a time, communion was not the principal service most of the time. It would have been uh, morning prayer or evening prayer, but you would do this again at the, one of those principal services, either the morning service or the evening service on Sundays or holy days. And, um, you know, we don't just show up and say, okay, my kid, let's, let's baptize my kid today. We want to plan ahead. We want to give notice. Uh, we want to make sure that the sponsors know what they're getting into, you know, when they're making their vows on behalf of the children. 
um, then this fourth one, when any such persons as, as are of riper years are to be baptized, timely notice shall be given to the minister that so due care may be taken for their examination, whether they be sufficiently instructed in the principles of the Christian religion and that they may be exhorted to prepare themselves with prayers and fasting for the receiving of this holy sacrament. And note at the time of the baptism of an adult, there shall be present with him at the font at least two witnesses. Okay, so this tells us that things are, this tells us, um, one, we're assuming infant baptism is the norm, right? That's, that's kind of our assumption. We're assuming that this is um, families raising their children in the faith. But we're not, we're not saying that's the exclusive, that's just the norm. You know, the prayer book really grows up in the midst of a generally Christian culture. Um, you know, here in, here in the States, we've, we've never had a state church. We've never had an established uh, church. That said, the Episcopal Church, you know, our, our, our Anglicanism here in the States has functioned quasi-establishment, you know, historically speaking. Um, it's functioned in that way. And, you know, the idea that um, you're going to find folks that want to argue that, you know, all the founding fathers and everything in America's history was Christian until the 1960s or something like that. That's not quite true. <laughs> there was a lot of, um, there was, there was a lot of heterodox things going on always, but the general Christian culture was a thing for most of our history. For most of our history, America was Protestant with um, a Catholic minority and a Jewish minority um, that was mostly tolerated. <laughs> that's, that's, some, that's getting into some bad, bad uh, cultural history for us, that mostly part of tolerated. But um, that's, that's you know, kind of the hyper-diversity we see today was not the historic norm. Um, but that's more culture than it is necessarily saying that everybody was pious and, you know, the whole nation was saved and, you know, we were another Israel. We're not saying that. Um, two, two different issues. We don't want to look at either, either one of those extremes. But the point being that, that both in our Mother Church of England and here in the States for our, our, our history coming from the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States of America, um, we are generally assuming Christian culture, but we are making way for um, evangelism, for conversions, adult conversions, and that sort of thing. Um, I was reading, I've been reading very slowly um, an account of the, uh, the, um, the church here, here in the States, um, written by an Episcopal bishop. 150 years ago, 200 years ago. And, and um, we find that uh, the um, Pocahontas was one of the first converts in, in, in America. She was one of the first, and, and she was an absolute celebrity when she went back to England, uh, when she was taken back to England. But yeah, she was one of the first adult converts among the Native Americans. So that was, and that was part of, part of why most of the settlers were coming is they did want to preach the gospel to the natives. Okay, so, but, so we, do have, we do have this um, provision for riper years baptism, adult baptism. And when it comes to adult baptism, uh, when it comes to those of more riper years, um, the expectation is that they are gonna be catechized prior to baptism. So for an adult convert, catechizing happens prior to baptism. But as we've already established, the norm with infant baptism, obviously they're not catechized until after their baptism, right? They get catechized when they're older. So, so that kind of sets the context for, for our, uh, our baptismal liturgy, our baptismal rite. Okay, so let's, let's, um, let's pause there. Uh, questions, comments on all this kind of introductory material. Okay, um, I, I don't. 
I don't um, want to spend too much time on looking at kind of the rationale for infant baptism. I think most of us here are pretty convinced of that, but because there may be folks uh, watching outside of it, um, basically what we see is that we, we've all recognized that the children raised in the faith are different from um, folks that were not. You know, there's a difference between a child of Christian parents who's raised as a Christian than there is of um, a pagan or a child that was not raised in the church. And so um, the, historically the church has uh, very early on begins to baptize the children of Christians and bring them into the faith and, to, and raising them as Christians and considering them Christians as our, as our liturgy certainly does. Uh, some of the rationale for that, just, just very briefly in Acts chapter 2, St. Peter says that, um, you know, to be, to be baptized and it'll be the promise for you and for your children, right? So the children are included in that. Um, Acts chapter 16, when the Phil Philippian jailer um, converts, um, it's him and his household. And, you know, the assumption there is that probably includes little ones. And then, of course, we have the texts from our baptismal liturgy itself. Um, in uh, this first one, Mark 10, beginning at verse 13, is them bringing the children to Christ. And Christ says, um, you know, suffer the little children to come to me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. And in Luke's gospel, it's the, the word there is infants. It's, it's, um, it's, you know, it's not children of the age of consent or, you know, of, of, of rationality, or even like little four-year-olds who make their conversion and, you know, in, in the Baptist circles when we were growing up sort of thing. You know, in Luke, it's very explicit they're bringing infants to him. So those are kind of the, the rationale. None, none of that's a silver bullet. Um, you know, our, our uh, credo Baptist friends will uh, argue against all of those. None, none of that's a silver bullet. Either way, we're doing a little bit of argument from silence, but um, we do see that this is uh, certainly the older, the older practice. Okay, let's talk about- question. Yes. I think you might have frozen up there, Delaney. We'll give her a second. Be the person baptizing somebody. Uh, could you say that again? You you, uh, you froze up and broke up. Uh, oh, sorry, let me try and get closer to the end. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, so what are the requirements to be somebody, to be the person who baptizes other people? To, to, per, to perform the, uh, the, the, the ceremony, so to speak, to officiate? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, normally that is going to be a priest. Um, it's, it's expected that that's, that's going to be the, one of the parish priests. Um, in uh, kind of more irregular times, certainly a deacon can do it, or even in emergency situations, a layman can do it. Um, but the normal, the normal minister for baptism is going to be um, a priest or a bishop. And again, a lot of that boils down to what we talked about for that first rubric. This is being done in the church, in the family of faith. And so, um, you know, the, the, the one who has authority in that local parish should be the one most of the time doing the baptism. Um, I, I think when I was, before I was the rector, I don't think, I, I think I maybe did one baptism that was um, kind of in more of a private situation where blah, blah, there's a lot of weird details to it. doesn't really matter. Um, but, but yeah, you know, I, I that's the way it, it always had been. And the only exception since I've been at All Saints that we've made to that is that when my daughter, my youngest was, bap was baptized, I had Father Barry do it um, because I wanted to be wearing my, my dad hat then rather than my priest hat. Although I did wear quite literally my priest hat at that time too, but um, so, yeah, yeah, that's normally, it's going to be the priest, normally the rector, but it can be um, another, you know, in any baptized Christian can, can baptize in an emergency. Okay, let's look at some highlights of, of our baptism, um, our baptismal rite. Page 273, the first thing that the priest says is, hath this child uh, or person been already baptized or no? So this tells us that um, we don't rebaptize as Anglicans. 
Uh, the church historically has not rebaptized. It's always been, you know, one, one faith, one baptism. Um, we don't start to see rebaptisms really until the Radical Reformation with the various Anabaptist groups. Um, uh, today, it's often assumed that rebaptism would be a thing because, at least here in the States, but that's largely because um, the biggest group of Christians in the States really are um, Baptists or those who came from a Baptist background. Um, but but that but that's a very that's a really a Johnny come lately position, um, and the only ones that were ever rebaptizing prior to that were were just were heretics <laughs> who were um, denying legitimate baptism for some reason or another. So that's a, that's a highlight. We only have one baptism. We don't rebaptize. Even if you've walked away from the faith and you come back, you don't get to say I wasn't a Christian. I need to be baptized. No, you get to repent. You know, you were a Christian. Um, you, you're a Christian who is in need of repentance. And so go ahead and repent and we will accept you back to the Lord's table, right? Um, so that's, that's the way that goes. And really we have that call um, every week at, at, at the communion table, you know, repent, come to the Lord's table. And that's what we would say to the person that has walked away, um, though they had previously been baptized. Um, turn the page, if you will. Um, we have uh, this prayer. Um, well, actually, no, let's, 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 let's go back to that bottom prayer. Dearly beloved, so page 273. Dearly beloved, for as much as our Savior Christ saith, none can enter the kingdom of God except he be regenerate and born anew of water and the Holy Ghost. I beseech you to call upon God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, that of his bounteous mercy he will grant to this child that which by nature he cannot have, that he may be baptized with water and the Holy Ghost and receive into Christ's holy church and be made a living member of the same. So one of the things that sometimes gets brought up, um, again, this is more coming from Baptistic circles, and, and this is really the waters which we swim, especially here in Texas, is they'll say, okay, if you're saying that baptism is generally necessary for, for salvation, you're no longer saying that salvation is by faith, but because you're basing it on a work, and that work is baptism. But what are we saying right here? Actually, no, baptism isn't something that we're doing. It's something that God's doing. God is, God is giving us the grace. It's not we're doing something to earn his grace, but this is the means by which he, he told us um, that he, he imparts this grace. This is the way he gives us that grace, is, is, is through the sacrament. It's something that by nature he cannot have. You can't baptize yourself. You, you know, you can't save yourself. So that's a, that's, that's a very important thing right there. Um, the next paragraph, uh, we're not going to read the whole thing, um, but we do about four lines down. We say, um, we call upon thee for this child that he coming to thy holy baptism may receive remission of sin by spiritual regeneration. So we are receiving something here in the sacrament. It is efficacious as we say in the creed, for the remission of sins. Um, regeneration, you know, baptismal regeneration is a thing in our liturgy. Um, it all, we'll also say as we, as we move forward that, um, that this is also the giving of the Holy Spirit. Actually, we just read that in the previous paragraph. You know, the Holy Spirit is conveyed at baptism. You do not need some later baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is baptism. Right? There's, they're not two separate things, contra to what um, some of the charismatic movement has said. You know, and, and, and all of this gets based on what we read in, in the scriptures. And so we have three main texts we read at baptism. Um, and even before we get into those texts, we have that um, who um, Ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. So these words of Jesus from, his, from, from the parables um, are alluded to in the prayer, which is typical of the prayer book, right? Most of this is allusions to, if it's not direct scripture, it's allusions to scripture, right? And so we've already talked about this first one. It's Mark 10, 13, which is the passage of bringing the children to Jesus and Jesus accepting those children and saying, don't take the children away because the kingdom of God is for such as these children, and anybody that's going to come to the kingdom needs to be like a child, needs to have that trusting, that, that, that um, innocent trust that a child has. Um, 
top of 275, we have another option, which is John uh, 3, the first half of John 3. And what's this? This is Nicodemus coming to Jesus, right? And what is, and he says, how can, um, and Jesus tells him that, um, you know, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. This text has been used as one of the baptismal texts forever in the church. You'll find a lot of folks that say, but how he's not talking about baptism contextually. How are you saying this? Well, actually, if you continue on to the end of chapter three, what's the next thing that happens after he meets Nicodemus? Jesus and the apostles are, are, are baptizing in the Jordan. The only reason why we miss it is that we have those, those section divisions in our Bibles, <laughs> those subheadings that aren't really there. <laughs> um, yeah, immediately after meeting Nicodemus, we see Jesus baptizing. We don't really ever see him baptizing, except for in that passage. And, and again, the church has always seen this idea of being born of water and the spirit to be, to, to be a reference to baptism. We have to be born of water and the spirit in baptism. Um, you never see this idea of sometimes people say, well, being born of water means our natural birth. We have to be literally born and then we have to be spiritually born. That connection of being born of water to natural birth is never used in, in documents of this time. You never see that popping up until again, the Anabaptist sects in the radical reformation. Um, it's, it's just not, not the way the phrase ever goes. And um, yeah, okay. So not harping on that too much anymore. The third one being Matthew um, 28, 18, which is the Great Commission, where Jesus commands that, um, go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So that's the evangelistic connection to baptism with evangelism ought to be baptisms. And um, all of our missionary friends, even those that work in some of the really nasty parts of the world where you can get killed for doing this, they do, they do a lot of baptisms. Um, and they're pretty good at figuring out how to do it in ways that uh, don't get on the, the radar of the governments. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Okay, any, any, any questions or comments on this? And, we can, or, and then we can move on somewhere too. Okay, um, let's move on to the next page. This top, this top passage is pretty important. We say, and now, so this is page 276, top of the page. And now being persuaded of the goodwill of our Heavenly Father toward this child, declared by his Son, Jesus Christ, let us faithfully and devoutly give thanks unto him and say, and then we, then we, um, we have this prayer um, for the regeneration prior to baptism. Um, part of what's going on here is that because of what the scriptures say, we are assuming that God wants people to get saved. He's not going to close the door on those that come to him. And so that's why we can bring our children to him in confidence because he says that he's not going to shut the door on them. You know, this isn't one of those things, okay, dear Lord, please make it stick. Um, oh man, why didn't the Lord make it stick? You know, that's, that's not, that's not what, we're, what we're doing here. But rather, whether we're persuaded of the goodwill of our Father towards our children. Um, does that negate the reality that we have and has ever been so in the church? A lot of baptized folks who don't seem to show the fruit of regeneration. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's the fact. That's, that's true. Um, there is wheat among the chaff, but the answer to that is not get rebaptized every time you fall into sin and come back. The answer is repent. You know, the answer is 
amend your life? Um, the answer is listen to the gospel and come to the table and accept his forgiveness, right? Um, which is why we all, we do have rights for confession and absolution, even if we're not calling it um, a sacrament officially in, in our formularies. Um, although there are Anglicans that do call it such. Okay. Um, once we get to the bottom of page 276, we start to have the sponsors, that is the godparents and parents, making vows on behalf of the child. Um, these vows are largely based, um, although not exclusively, on the Apostles' Creed. And so when it says at the bottom, dost thou believe all the articles of the Christian faith as contained in the Apostles' Creed? Yeah, when we're talking about the articles of our Christian faith, we're not talking about the articles of religion. We certainly as Anglicans see those as important. But when we talk about the articles of the Christian faith in capitals, it's, we're always talking about the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed for the West is the baptismal creed. It's the one that we use, we base our baptismal vows off of. Um, but, but here are the vows that, that's made. Um, Dost thou, in the name of this child, renounce the devil and all his work, the vain pomp and glory of the world, with all covetous desires of the same, and all the sinful desires of the flesh, so that thou wilt not follow nor be led by them. There's a little mini exorcism that goes into the into the baptismal service. Um, you know, we 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 are going to wash the hell out of them. You know, that's that's that that's the way we're doing things. Um, there's in modern times, there's been a little bit of an embarrassment in some Anglican circles over this kind of exorcism language. No, keep it in. You know, the world, the flesh, and the devil are real, and they want our children's soul. But, um, you know, we, we baptize them so that that won't happen, right? We, and we raise them in the faith so that that won't happen. Okay, we've already talked about belief in the, in the articles of the Christian faith. Um, you know, wilt thou be baptized in this faith? Um, then obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in the same. Uh, so, you know, th these are the vows being made on behalf of the child. And then um, this final one on top of uh, 277, having now in the name of this child made these promises, wilt thou also on thy part take heed that this child learn the creed, the Lord's prayer, and the Ten Commandments and all other things which a Christian ought to know and believe to his soul's health. And so the sponsor says, yep, that's my job. As the sponsor, I'm going to train this child in the faith. And that's summarized in the creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments. Our catechism is based on learning those things, right? Um, and then finally, wilt thou take heed that this child so soon as sufficiently instructed be brought to the bishop to be confirmed by him? And I will, God being my helper. So um, the whole goal here is to... to as far as the sponsor's job, the sponsor's job is to raise the child, to catechize this child and um, get them to where they can be confirmed. Where, and we'll talk about confirmation next week, but we will see that um, baptism should, you know, confirmation is this bridge for our children between baptism and the Lord's table. And we'll talk about that again a bit more next week. But uh, that is something we need to do. That tells us, though, that um, as important as it is for catechesis to be being done at the church, I mean, that is part of the duty of the ministers is to make sure the children are being instructed. Um, it's also a big, it's also the role of godparents and parents. Um, choose godparents who are going to help get that child catechized, not just because they're your best friends, right? You know, that's, that's, that's an important thing. Um, and parents, by all means, make sure that this is something you are doing intentionally um, with, with your kids, uh, grandparents with your grandkids. Um, you'll notice there's a line for this next section on 277. Well, that's the version of the vows made by one of riper years. So someone that is of, of the age to make to decide they want to be baptized. So an adult convert or possibly um, an older child who for whatever reason was not baptized before. And that, that person is going to make these vows on their own behalf. Um, it's not being done by their sponsors, but you'll remember from the rubrics that we have two witnesses, because even when you're making these vows on your own, you're not doing this by yourself, right? You know, we're doing this as part of a community of faith. But they're basically the same, um, the same thing. Okay, um, 
let's see, we are, we are pushing time. Let's see. Um, I'm going to skip this, these next prayers at the bottom of 278 and 279. But what we, what we do see is that these sum up in prayer a lot of what we've already talked about. So, I mean, this, this um, service does drive home similar points again and again and again. And there's good reasons for that. You know, that's, that's part of its, you know, the service's role as, as being catechetical as well. 279, we see that, um, you know, naming the child happens at baptism. That's why sometimes um, it's called christening because you get your Christian name at your baptism, right? Now, the reality is most folks already have their name, but as far as the community of faith is concerned, this is when you're getting your Christian name, your Christian name being your first name. Um, this is very much tied to what we see going on in Old Testament practice for circumcision. Um, whole, baptism and circumcision, when it comes to our children, are very much tied. What we see going on in the Old Testament um, points us to what's being fulfilled in the New Testament as far as baptism. And in Colossians, uh, I believe chapter 2, um, St. Paul explicitly does, does tell us this. You know, he, he explicitly makes that connection. Um, again, you know, and in, in, in my... Uh, my theology professor at the Baptist University says, yeah, but um, you don't, um, uh, but, but you don't, in the Old Testament, they didn't circumcise girls. Well, the anti-type is never greater than the type, right? The, the type being baptism, I'm sorry, the, the anti-type is always greater than the type, get confused. The type, which is circumcision, is never gonna be better than baptism. And part of what makes baptism better is that everybody is involved. That also is why if the old covenant includes your children, it would be a terrible thing if the new covenant didn't. If the new covenant only included those that can make that um, volitional decision as, as adults. Um, so that we did get a question in, in the chat. Tracy asked why in, in Roman Catholicism do folks have two uh, Christian names? Um, oftentimes at confirmation, they will take a second name, kind of being a patron saint's name. Um, some of that has ties in with a Roman Catholic understanding of um, intercession of the saints, praying to the saints. So basically what ends up happening is that everybody has their own individual patron saint in, in, in the Roman Catholic tradition. And so that, that name is that they take on is going to be the name of, of the patron saint that they've, they've taken on. And um, what, what you find with that is that, and I, I've saw this with a lot of my, my friends who are, uh, my female friends who, who are raised Roman Catholic, they often have their confirmational name is, is a male saint. You know, that's not uncommon. Um, so they'll, they'll have both a male name and a female name, so to speak. But, but that other name is, is their, their confirmation name is really more of a patron saint than it is um, the other. And kind of in a similar way, um, you'll find in some uh, countries that are more Roman Catholic culture, like in Mexico and some of the other um, uh, Spanish speaking nations, um, they will celebrate their saint's day more, more elaborately than their birthday a lot of times. And what's the saint's day? Well, it's whatever day of the year, the person who's the saint who shares your first name has. So, um, you know, everybody's named after a saint. And so their saint's day, their santo, is going to be their um, kind, of, kind of a bigger party day, at least traditionally, than a birthday was. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but at least that, that was traditionally. Okay, let's see. Um, we're almost done with what I wanted to say, then we'll just kind of open it up after that. So yeah, we do have that the name being tied to community life, um, which is which is a very Old Testament concept. Um, you'll see at the top of page two eighty this we receive this child or this person into the congregation of Christ's flock and do sign him with the sign of the cross and token that hereafter he shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and manfully to fight under his banner against the sin, the world, and the devil, and continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant into his life's end. So part, again, part of what's going on here is we are bringing them into the community of faith as well and um, praying for that strengthening 
that need uh, for steadfastness and fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And part of the role of the community is to help with that, right? The community is there to help you with fight the good fight of faith. And of course, the Lord promises to do that for us as well. Um, and one other thing I have to say, then I'll just kind of open it up for y'all. Um, I've, I've often described the way we approach the sacrament of baptism and regeneration as a generous assumption. We are going to assume that everybody that's been baptized is a Christian, genuinely speaking, that they are not only part of the visible church, but that they're also part of the invisible church. That said, we have this constant call to repentance, this constant call to examine yourself, to make sure you're in the faith, um, not so that we're overly introspective and getting overly scrupulous and being afraid that God's going to boot us out of, out of his family. That's not why we do this. But we do this because we know that backsliding is real and that apostasy and backsliding look exactly the same in the beginning stages. And we don't want that to happen to us, right? So that's why we... we, we do have that call to repentance. That's why we do recognize our propensity to sin, why um, in, in the offices we call ourselves miserable offenders, because that's who we are on our own. Um, and rather than beating us down and making us into, you know, having no self-esteem, that just shows us the goodness of God and how much he loved us that he, that he brought us in anyway. Um, so, so yeah, we have a generous assumption um, but we also have that constant call to repentance. Okay. Um, questions, comments? I don't know if y'all can hear my, hear my Tori. She's having a difficult evening. I have a question, Father. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, we were talking about baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. There are denominations that baptize other than that. Right. Uh, that's what I didn't know. I was just going to have a question regarding it. So that yeah, means so, that they will be rebaptized. Right, right. Yeah, baptism must be done with the Trinitarian formula. That's what we see from Scripture from Matthew 28. Um, in Acts, where they talk about being baptized into the name of Jesus, that's descriptive rather than, um, that's describing the difference between the baptism of Christian baptism and John's baptism, generally, in those terms. Um, but the assumption always is going to be Trinitarian baptism. Um, you have, we have some quasi-Christian groups who are non-Trinitarian. We would certainly rebaptize them because they weren't baptized into the Christian faith. They were baptized into something other than Christianity. We also have some groups like the Oneness Pentecostals who are um, modalists. They don't really believe in the Trinity. Again, that's not really Christianity. If it's not Trinitarian, it's not Christianity. Now, um, I'll, I'll, I'll hasten to add, not all Pentecostals are Oneness Pentecostals. They're a very small group of Pentecostals, but, um, but that's a heresy. You know, the, the Trinity is bare bones basics um, you know, hence, do you believe what's in the, the, the articles of the Christian faith as described in the Apostles' Creed? Um, sometimes in these days of non-denominationalism, you'll just have folks that were kind of baptized sloppily. You know, it's not so much that they're not Trinitarian, but they just, you know, they don't have a liturgy. They don't, you know, and they're just kind of doing stuff. <laughs> um, you know, we, in general, we're, we're not going to get to, you know, we're not going to probe into those things too terribly. I mean, if someone says, okay, I know I was baptized. I don't know if they were Trinitarian formula. Okay, we can do a conditional baptism. You know, okay, if you weren't already baptized, I baptize you in the name of, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not so much a rebaptism as a conditional baptism. We can do that, um, but we're not going to, to like, Okay, are you sure? Did you really get baptized in the name of the Trinity? Uh, you know about those non-denominational folks. You know, we're not going to do anything like that. And, and, you know, God's not going to boot someone out of the family on a technicality. You know, God doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, again, generous assumption. 
Um, but, but yeah, if someone does come, you know, we, we had someone at the parish a while back who had spent some time, you know, her family was Jehovah's Witness and she knew she had been baptized, but she couldn't remember whether she had been baptized by the Jehovah's Witnesses or if it was later on when she was younger in kind of a non-denominational circle. And I believe she ended up being conditionally baptized because of that. So that, that's the way that goes. But in general, we would, yeah, we would accept, we would accept other denominations of baptism as long as it's Trinitarian. Okay, anybody, anybody else? I just kind of have a quick comment, not really a question, I guess. Uh, I just kind of liked that whole thing of uh, how there's a kind of an emphasis on uh, uh, confession and repentance after, you know, especially someone who's, you know, let's say walked away from the church, became like a, an atheist almost uh, in there and what they were confessing for a while and then come back to the church that you don't just rebaptize them. It's like they were always there. They just kind of, you know, wandered away for a while and now they're coming back and they just need to repent from their sin. They're always, you know, a Christian. They were born into the church or they were, you know, brought into the church under baptism that, but they just walked away. They wandered away for a while. They need the repentance to come back. I like that. Uh, I, I'm, just coming from an evangelical and sometimes Baptist background where it's, I felt baptism was almost like a thing you just did every time you went to a new church. It's almost like you, you, know, you just got baptized in this church and then you got baptized in that church and you just got baptized in that church. And I just didn't have the same staying power, I guess you could say. Uh, yeah. And there are, there are some um, groups in kind of your, your more Baptistic groups who do require um, baptism for every every new, um, yeah, every time you come to a new church, some require baptism in that particular congregation. Again, that's really a historical anomaly. Um, and yeah, and, and, but really what you see more often is, you know, every time, you know, the, the, the itinerant evangelist comes into town, um, you know, half the deacons and most of the youth group gets rebaptized because they concluded they weren't saved, you know, <laughs> and so they get baptized all over again. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, and sometimes that can almost be, you know, just kind of from a psychological and spiritual direction um, perspective, that can almost be a crutch rather than deal with whatever sin you fell into um, it's really easy just to claim, okay, I wasn't really saved back then. So now let me start with a clean slate. You can still start with a clean slate, but let's deal with the sin. You know, that's what, that's what repentance is. And, and I don't think, I mean, I don't think that's why that happens, but that is something that does happen because of that. And, you know, we, that, that's typical in, in youth groups and kind of generic evangelicalism. Uh, there was a question popped in the chat, in the chat about the assemblies of God. Assemblies of God baptism is, is, is typically in, in a Trinitarian formula. Uh, from what I understand. Yeah. They're, they're, um, they're generally orthodox, uh, when it, when it comes to, to this. So that's, that's not an, I'd have some issues with some of, some of the things they teach, but not, not on this, you know, we, we would not consider them to be outside of, you know, general Trinitarian or orthodoxy. All right. Um, um, anybody? I, oh, I've got one more. <laughs> sure. Uh, I do know of one, and I, maybe you can comment on this. I don't know how much you know about this. There is one group I've heard of that rebaptized in history. They, I guess, they're considered a heretical group. That was the Donatists. Right. And yeah. They they were kind of as opposed to like what you see with Baptists. It's just like a new congregation thing. They were like all those people who basically betrayed the church during the uh, persecution under Diocletian. Uh, right. They said, you, uh, if you were baptized by that dude because he betrayed the church and he uh, bent the knee to the Romans, you've got to, like, everyone get rebaptized. And so there was this massive controversy about that. And that's, that's the only other, and I, I don't know if you know much about that, but I was just going to just kind of throw that out there. That is the only one I know of. And I, I know they're considered heretics. I don't know much about their theology, but I know that they were just, uh, they, they kind of just were unmerciful, I guess you could say. And I guess they didn't, they kind of denied the idea that the spirit can still flow through someone, even though if they, you know, backslide for a period of time. 
Yeah, the biggest problem with, yeah, the Donatists are considered her her heretics, um, a heretical sect, and it's been a while since I've um, studied them, but just kind of going, going from, my, from memory. The biggest thing is that they did deny repentance and that they tied the efficacy to this, of the sacrament um, too much to, to the priest. And so you would never have um, assurance that your baptism was valid. You'd never have assurance that, you know, you were actually taking communion because what if my priest turns out to be a bad guy? Um, and, and yeah, I mean, they, they basically, yeah, they, they, in denying repentance, it's, it's denying a major tenet of the gospel. Um, you know, their, their piety was admirable. It came from a good place, you know, them wanting to protect the sanctity of, of, of the church and, and the sanctity of God's people, but it led them into, into, into error and, and, and into heresy. Yeah. Yeah, like and, how does and, that work with the um that whole thing where Paul was yelling at everybody because they were segregating off, being like, "Oh, I'm baptized by Peter. Oh, well, I'm baptized by so and so." Doesn't that kind of refute all that? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the um, which which is one of the reasons why we don't rebaptize. You know, that's that's part of the reason why we have one faith, one church, one baptism. You know, um, you know, I, I'm. I wasn't baptized into the Episcopalian religion. I was baptized in, into Christianity, you know? Um, and even though my siblings were baptized by, by Roman Catholic priests and I was baptized by an Episcopal priest, we were still baptized into the same, into the same church, um, even if institutionally those denominations are separate. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you do see kind of the beginnings of, you know, schism, um, factionalism, tribalism, you know, all the way back in New Testament times. So, yeah, this is nothing new. You know, real quick. Um, so the other thing, I guess, uh, again, whatever Baptist thing. So, you know, you do the whole immersion thing versus yeah. the spring, which y'all do. But I guess the Orthodox as for what I know is they do, they also do immersion for some of it. So I'm like, how do you decide or what's the rationale? Cause like I said, the sprinkling thing is just, I'm like, what? Okay. And again, just cause of how we grew up in sure. a variety of medical groups or whatever. It's like, well, you dunk them all the way in or you just spritz them or what? So. Yeah. So, so the, um, one of the things you sometimes hear is that the, uh, the, the Greek um, only can be interpreted as full immersion. That's, that's just not good Greek. That's not true. Um, in the in the Didache, which is a late first century, early second century um, work, it's one of the earliest post New Testament works of the Church Fathers. Um, they basically say like this: Okay, um, if you can immerse them in living water, so an actual river or something like that, do so. If you don't got that, then you know then pour them. If you don't even got that, then sprinkle them, you know? And, and so there's, there's this idea that the mode doesn't really matter. I, I do think immersion is more ideal in general, but um, part of the reason why that's not typically done in our circles is there's really two reasons for that. One, one is that we are assuming infant baptism and um, full immersion of infants is a little hairy. It can be done, but it's but it's a little hairy. And um, two, um, most of our parishes just just physically aren't set up for it. And we would rather baptize in the church in a little font than have to not be baptized with the community present elsewhere. That said, um, I know plenty of Anglican parishes who. Um, if folks request it, they'll say, okay, after church, we're all going down to the Comal River, you know, we're going to, and we're going to, we're going to do baptisms for, you know, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, yeah, and, and, and largely that, 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 that's, that's just part of the, part of the way things are um, almost historical accident. But yeah, the, the mode is not, is not important. You know, we, we certainly don't say one ought to be sprinkled rather than, than 
immerse. And really, we don't even, it's not even really sprinkling. It really is pouring the, the way that we do it. Um, you know, pouring from the, uh, from the, the uh, ceremonial seashell, so to speak, over, over the, the child's head. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the mode's not, not particularly important. It, it doesn't, it doesn't change the efficacy of the sacrament. Um, that said, yeah, immersion probably is the ideal, even if we're not physically set up to do it. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. All right. We are at 7.30. I'm going to bid you all good night. Um, Reese, you want me to turn it over to you if folks want to hang out? I suppose so. All right. I'm making you, I'm making you responsible, Reese. So there we go. All right. I'm going to go ahead and end the recording here. God bless you all. I'll see you later on. <laughs> Have a good one, Father Isaac.